Just before 9 a.m. on June 7th, the fire alarm went off in the block of townhomes in the 500 block of Carrollton Drive. The fire had started in the northernmost townhome, the one at 537 Carrollton Drive, and soon the seven townhomes were engulfed in flames. 537 Carrollton Drive, between Pearl Street and Prospect Boulevard, house fire 9 Delta, 856. We got a working fire, second floor of the entire row. 18 residents were displaced from the townhomes that were built in 1966. The building was considered a total loss. So this week we have our very own Alan Etzler stepping in as a co-host. So Alan, can you give us a quick description of your role here at Frederick News Post? Um, oh gosh. Uh, yeah, I'm, my title is city editor uh, and I maintain our website and edit our stories and sometimes write some stuff, which is what we'll talk about a little later. All right, perfect. Well, thank you so much for co-hosting. Thanks for having me. All right, so to talk a little bit about what's going on with the fire and the victims from the townhome fire, we brought in Becky Wiesenberg. So welcome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm Rebecca Duke Wiesenberg. I'm a sun- summer intern here, but everyone just calls me Becky in real life. All right, perfect. So now you went out and covered this story? Well, I didn't go out to the townhouses, but um, I did call people who were affected by it. All right. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about what happened with the fire and where it's, the victims are right now? Sure. So um, a few weeks ago, there was a fire that burned down a block of seven townhouses um, in southern downtown Frederick. Um, and currently the victims, some of them are in a, in a hotel um, and other, other ones are uh, staying with uh, extended family. Um, but there is one woman, Denise, hold on, oh, Denise Sparks, um, and she's been more or less, the, well, I shouldn't say more or less, she has been the liaison um, between the greater Frederick community and the victims. So she's actually um, a member of the South End Baptist Church, which is located across the street from the townhouses. And so she's been working with her pastor and with the community to, you know, like, um, to fundraise for gift cards and toys and clothes and whatever the victims need. And she makes sure that the victims are in touch with the Red Cross, um, who are providing caseworkers to get the families resituated. All right. And so is Denise one of the victims as well? Yes. She and her husband, Bill. Okay. And so um, when talking with her, did you get to talk to any other ones, the people who were affected? No. I've just talked to her, and I talked to um, Mike Cooper, who's the pastor of the church across the street. So um, tell us a little bit more about what they were doing right now with the church to help these people. Um, So uh, right now the church is just fundraising. So um, last week uh, the church hosted uh, like a get-together where they brought in the gift cards and the toys um, and the clothes, and Denise went and picked them up and brought them to the families. Um, So that's basically what the church is doing and is trying to provide support, since they are located right across the street. And even... um, Pastor Mike Cooper was out handing out granola bars and water bottles the day of the fire to the victims and all the bystanders. All right. And do you have an idea of how many victims there were? Yes. So there's 18 total. There's seven families because there's seven townhomes. And in terms of the Red Cross, you mentioned that they have caseworkers. So what are some of the things that they're doing? Yeah. So the caseworkers are supposed to help the families get in touch with um, local nonprofits to get resources. So like... um, One of them is finding more permanent housing, since none of them have houses right now, uh, trying to find houses for those with and without home insurance. Uh, Yeah, so that's one of the major ones, but also making sure that, you know, the families have food and they have clothes. Um, 
United Way is planning on having like um, a donations drive for things for other you know essentials like clothes too. Um, and talking to Red Cross, did they mention um, some of the things that they might need from other people to help these families? Um, no. So right now, I think it's just you know they're working with caseworkers like local nonprofits. Um, like United Way are going to be taking donations. But right now, the Red Cross, after giving the families emergency funds for the first 72 hours, it's just working with caseworkers. All right. And and did you get to talk to the fire marshal at all about the, uh, the fire? Yes, a little bit. And they have an idea of um, what caused it? Um, no, I think they said it was, I think they said it was electric fire. I can't remember off the top of my head. But the buildings were old, and they were built during, in the 60s when the code was different. So, like, there weren't sprinklers in the houses and so with the, the fire. But the buildings considered a total loss at this point? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's a block of them together. It started at the end of the street and then kept going up. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for telling us about this story. Yes, thanks for having me. So I spoke with the Red Cross to find out a little bit more about how they were assisting the 18 people who were displaced from the fire. Uh, My name is Sarah Davis, and I'm the Disaster Program Manager for Western Maryland. And can you tell us a little bit about how the Red Cross was able to assist in the townhome fire? Um, I think it displaced about seven residences. Sure. And uh, we, we responded as soon as we received the call. Um, we received a call from uh, the fire department, and we had uh, people on scene to provide immediate assistance to those families uh, to make sure that they they were able to uh, get somewhere safe and um, have what they needed for the first 48 to 72 hours. And um, then we, uh, we provided each one of them a caseworker to walk them through their recovery process. So each one of them now are going through that recovery process with a caseworker, and that's where we determine um, what other organizations we can partner with, um, the best ways for those families to recover, because each person's recovery is different. And so when you mentioned mm-hmm. that they were there for the first 48 hours, so what are some of the things that Red Cross did right away when they got to the scene of the fire? Sure. Um, I mean, the first thing we do when we get to a scene of the fire is find all the families. Um, usually they've kind of scattered to the winds. Um, when, you know, because they all leave their home and they go um, somewhere um, outside of their house. So so we brought them all to um, the Baptist church there that's across the street from where the, the fire occurred. And um, we meet with them and we talk about what their immediate needs are. Do they have a place to stay that night? You know, were they able to get their license or their medicine or their eyeglasses, et cetera, out of the home? And then we worked with the fire department to get what we could out of the home. So we were able to get some people's wallets. Um, <clears throat> you know, we were able to get some eyeglasses, things like that. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But then um, in addition to that, um, we did have some residents that were not able to get their medicine out of the home or it was smoke damaged. And so we, um, our disaster health services, um, volunteers that do this for us, um, were able to work with those families to get those meds um, uh recouped and um, the prescriptions filled. Um, And and so there's a lot of things that we do right on site, but that stuff is over and above the immediate financial assistance that we provide to the families. And then you mentioned that the caseworkers are working with the families right now to try to help them Mm -hmm. with the next step. So uh, how Mm -hmm. long will a caseworker work with each family? Until that family says you can stop calling. (laughs) 
Right. Um, so, and I know that sounds silly, um, but some people, they get back on their feet really, really quick, you know, and that can be 30 days, um, you know, because their insurance was amazing. You know, they, they found a new apartment, you know, three cousins helped them, you know, get everything they needed, all that stuff, right? Um, and so those people might not need as much assistance, but then there's other people that maybe they didn't have insurance. Um, and the recovery process will take a little longer. Uh, so those people might need a caseworker to, to work with them for, you know, three, four months even to get them back back to a normal normal recovery process. All right, perfect. And so I know with Red Cross, one of the things is that um, there's a lot of volunteering that goes along. So what are some things that resi- uh, people in the county, if they want to help out these families or through Red Cross, can do right now? Um, <clears throat> sure. Uh, so... What we recommend people um, doing is is helping out year-round. Um, so pick a charity that you love to volunteer for, a concept, a, um, a, a heart, uh, something that's in your heart that you want to volunteer for, and we would love that to be the Red Cross. We have a lot of options for people to volunteer and give their time. Um, so I, I just say please give your time, uh, donate your time, donate your blood, um, give back to your community in some way that benefits um, you know, benefits your neighbors, benefits your community, and and you'll see the benefits for yourself someday. And are the people who go out to the scenes of fires, are they staff members mm-hmm. or are they volunteers? Uh, they are volunteers. Um, so <clears throat> we do have some staff that do go to larger scale events, but we are a 95% led, volunteer-led workforce. So um, on any major disaster or even day-to-day um, operations, 95% of the work is done by volunteers. All right. And for people who are interested in that particular volunteering, how can they get involved in going out to fire scenes or helping people who have just been affected by fires? Sure. Uh, they can go to our website. It's redcross.org, and they can click on Volunteer Now. And there's a small application um, that you fill out with like your basic information, and then a recruiter calls you to make sure that this is what fits for you. Um, we do have a lot of options for uh volunteering and disasters. So there's the normal <clears throat> fire, we call them DAT, disaster action teams. Um, and those are the people that go out to the fires. You can get a call at two in the afternoon or two in the morning. Um, and sometimes that's not the right fit for everyone. Um, but we have a ton of options to help in um, in our disaster-related um, events, either nationwide or locally and everything in between. So we would love people to go on, click volunteer, and uh, redcross.org. We'd love to have you. All right. Perfect. And so you mentioned that this can, uh, for the fire teams, especially it can be 2 a.m. or 2 p.m. Um, so are there multiple people working um, on, th- on this team to make sure that there are some people who go to the 2 p.m. but also the 2 a.m.? Oh, yes. Yeah. We, um, we make sure that all the, the schedules are covered. So the volunteers, as they come on board, um, we work with them on their schedules and uh, and all of that. And if, if for some reason we find a block of time that doesn't have somebody that fills, we, we recruit for our additional volunteers in those time frames. So we, anybody, even if you have, you know, just afternoons um, or just mornings, we would rather you come because uh, we need, fires don't just happen at night. Uh, fires don't just happen at noon. We need people to cover the whole spectrum. All right. Perfect. Yep. And to just walk a little bit back to um, the people who were just affected by the fire in their townhomes, um, with those case, sure. um, with the caseworkers, are those also volunteers? Yes. Yep. Our casework staff is all volunteers. 
All right. um, it's that same concept of 95%. Um, so we do have a couple of uh, paid staff that do assist the volunteers uh, and the casework, but um, but all of our, our caseworkers are volunteers. Yep. All right. And are they calling like once a day, just making sure they're okay? Well, actually, um, like I said, everyone's recovery process is different. So some some people do need that day-to-day touch base. Um, other, um, other people going through the recovery process are like, you know, let's talk, you know, once or twice a week. Um, you know, let me have a couple of days to get a few things settled and then we'll come back. And, um, and so really it's up to the person and how you work with your caseworker and what your needs are. And, and it's, each recovery process is different. And just in terms of the people with the fire, um, you know, is there a way to give us a quick update on how they're doing and as far as you know? Unfortunately, I can't talk about individual cases. Um, it is it is confidential to talk about people in their recovery process. So um, it, it's just not something that we do. That's okay. Well, again, and um, with the caseworkers, if people all can volunteer, they can also go to redcross.org? Yes, by all means. Um, yes, if you have, um, if, if anyone wants to volunteer to be a caseworker, we would love to have them. Have them. Um, you don't necessarily have to have any social work or psychology background. We, we do a lot of the training ourselves, and then we, we have other options for you to shadow and, and make sure that you're up to, to speed on everything that a caseworker would need to assist the family. So anyone that has a passion to help people can reach out to the Red Cross and, and do that. All right, perfect. Well, I really appreciate it. Anything else that you think um, people should know? No, not at the moment. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity, though. No problem. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. So we talked a little bit about a fire, but one of the other things that goes on with first responders, um, such as police officers or emergency room doctors or other doctors, is that they're responsible for giving death notifications. So Jeremy Arias and I started exploring this a little bit ago. And so on Sunday, we published a story looking at how those death notifications are taught and Uh, training for police officers and doctors, as well as the mental toll on doctors and police officers. Yeah, so I want to get into it kind of, uh, we'll we'll start a little bit generally, but where did the the idea for this for you guys come from and, and how did you go about reporting it? So I was at a conference and we were talking about gun violence and how health reporters can report on that. And one of the doctors that was on the panel mentioned how little training he got in giving death notifications and how he wanted more reporters to um, report on it. And I thought that's really interesting that no one is taught in medical school how to tell someone that they just lost a loved one. So I decided to see what training people in Frederick had. Um, But it's not just doctors that have to do this. So I asked Jeremy who... um, has been our cops uh, reporter for a while, if he would help me um, work on this story because I figured he'd be able to talk to the um, police officers about how they have to get death notifications and what training they get. Yeah, and so did you, upon reporting this story as you were doing it, did you find that all of the doctors are kind of the same where, where it's not something that's taught in medical school? And uh, what, I guess what was your initial reaction to, to hearing how they, how they learned to do this? So right now, a lot of the doctors that I talked to did not learn in medical school. They learned maybe as an intern or in their early residencies, kind of by watching a doctor do it and then being put in a situation. So it's a little bit of trial by fire, which, you know, if, I, if I'm a family, a member of someone who just died, maybe I don't want the new resident on their first time telling me that my loved one has died just because there's a lot of ways to do it and doctors talked about how they have seen people doing poorly and so you never want to give that news badly um now they are starting to 
teach it in medical school, um, which is something that has kind of come up from doctors being like, we need to start talking about this, um, which is, I think, a shift in medical school. Someone said it to the softer edges of medical school. Um, so they do simulations mm -hmm. with dummies and kind of go through that so that they can practice and they can mess up without it being the first time that they're actually talking to a patient's family. Now, how, do, how does the processes with in the medical field differ from that of of the uh, law enforcement side and, and are there any similarities in how they are told or taught or end up delivering this kind of news well i think it's kind of the same in terms of training in the sense that you learn a lot by observing from other people but in police officers actually do get some training during death notification or death investigations in the academy but still you know a couple days in the academy is not the same as watching somebody um I actually think the um, police officers do, do it a little bit better than um, doctors in the hospital. And I think it's partly because sometimes they ha it's if it's a death investigation, you have detectives that are f just for that um, or someone who might be on a crash team. Whereas like if you're in a doctor in a hospital, you might not have the time to do it as long as you want just because you have to get to your next patient. Um, but the police officers, uh, depending on where it was, but we looked at Frederick Police Department, um, they send two officers one male one female so that they have somebody for each person who's opening the door um they always try to go in person um which is something that differs in the hospital of course the hospital said you know we want um to do it in person i talked to someone from both frederick and meredith um so they said they want to do it in person because it's the kind of news that you should give in person but there are times that they're going to give families that call over the phone. Um, one especially I talked to was um, Dr. Kimberly Zuzak over at Meredith, and she's on the cardiology floor. And so they'll call if there's a change in status. But if you've left the, for the day, they're often just going to tell you that news over the phone instead of being like, hey, you need to come back to the hospital. Was there, and this can be um, a pretty difficult thing to deliver to anybody. This is probably the worst news um, maybe if you're in the medical field, there might be some expectation of it, but it's regardless going to be somebody you love who you're not going to be able to see anymore. What did you hear about the mental toll that that takes on people in, in these lines of work? So they all talked a little bit about how it can be very difficult and they, they do have resources. Um, chaplains are available to help people who both are suffering from losing somebody, but also someone who had to give that news. Um, there's also um, a lot of resources at the hospital or police departments. I think there is more of a shift of talking about it now, which wasn't always something that was going on in both of those lines. Um, but then they also talked a little bit about how you can kind of look at it as a way to help some, keep helping somebody, especially as a doctor. Um, you might not be helping your patient anymore, but you have an opportunity to help their family get through a very difficult time. Um, so one of the doctors I talked to talked about how the um, patients that she knew better were, they were always the easier death notifications because you could talk to the family about the patient you could take time to know them and kind of help them through that initial shock um, but then there's also understanding that you know people are going to react um, differently and some people do lash out in anger so there's safety precautions and those ones are a little bit harder um, just because you also have to think about your safety um, while someone's learning this news and what what role do you mentioned the chaplains and, and kind of they serve as a person, but, but what do they talk about with the with the people? What are, what are some of those conversations like, I guess? So with the, um, the chaplains in the hospitals um, are very similar to the ones that are on the um, 
the police force, except that the ones in the police force will give death notifications, whereas the ones in the hospitals are more there for support. So the one in the hospital, they might come before you die, like if you're a terminal patient, um, therefore you have a chance to kind of come to groups that you're dying, um, or they might be there afterwards. Um, most of them talked about how there's multiple um, denominations in terms of chaplains, so if you want a, um, a chaplain of a rabbi or versus a priest, um, but they talk about how they're just there to listen um, and kind of just be there because that's an important thing to have someone there while you're going through this news and if you want they'll give you a prayer if you don't want a prayer they're not going to give it to you they're just kind of there to help you process mm-hmm. and were there were there any specific scenarios that any of the doctors or the law enforcement officers shared that, that stuck out uh, were particularly meaningful so or I, difficult so i think each of them had one or two that they all that they remembered which were the most difficult for them um one of the first ones that um, Sergeant Alcorn talked about that was our lead was about, I think, a car crash victim. That it was his very first one that he had to give the news to. Um, for the doctors I talked to, and even one of the medical school um, trainer uh, doctors that I talked to, they had they couldn't necessarily remember their first, but they definitely had ones that stuck out. Um, so one was having to do with a seven-year-old child who died um, while he was on his bike, got hit by a car, and that is one that sticks out just because children are so hard. The other one was a cardiology um, patient who uh, died on a day that the floor was just crazy and a lot of people were um, having codes, which means that there's some type of a medical emergency. And so that one kind of stuck out to the one doctor because it was her, one of her first ones when she was on her own. And you, you mentioned the the specific ones that stick out, and I'm curious if there was anything that stuck out to the doctors or the law enforcement officers in those situations um, specifically about how the news is delivered, the manner in which you tell somebody that a loved one is dead. What did you guys come away with from, from how that news should be delivered? So I think one thing that surprised me with the cardiology patient and what, that it was done by phone call, which made sense the family had gone home for the day. They had been notified that there was a change in status, so it wasn't exactly unexpected. Um, but I think it was a little bit different because that was the second interview I had done, and the first interview was like, yes, we tried to do that in person. But the first person was a, an emergency room physician versus someone who was on the cardiology floor. So just within the hospital, things are different, and there's no set policy. So I think that's what kind of stuck out to me is like, oh, I would be you know terrified picking up the phone from the hospital now knowing that they can call versus mm-hmm. coming in. But I also understand if I'm, you know, 30 minutes away, if I get a call that says I'm, I need to come to the hospital, you kind of know what's mm-hmm. going on there too. Yeah. And did you get a sense that there are changes coming in how, how death notification practices are? You mentioned they're starting to learn it in medical school. Uh, were there any other changes like that that you, that you could think of or that you were told about? or that should occur? There were, are there challenges or problems to, to delivering this news? I don't think there's any more changes coming, and it seems like the police have a pretty good way of doing it. I think it'll be interesting to see how the medical school training helps because they don't really have a lot of study on that yet. It's pretty new. For, I talked to University of Maryland Medical Center. I think it's like this year or last year was the first time they've implemented it. So you've got some really young students going in, so they haven't had a chance to see if it actually does help. But so far, they've gotten like anecdotal um, mm-hmm. responses. So I think that kind of change will be different just to see, um, you know, if you go to that hospital now, those doctors, how do they respond as their interns and residents to 
giving that news, did that training actually help them? Or was it still something that, you know, doesn't matter until you do your first one that you fully understand what you're doing? Um, And I think depending on how they feel it's going, you'll start seeing more changes just because maybe you'll have more people who are more practiced and more polished. So you'll be able to change things that you identify. So uh, I appreciate you uh, answering the questions. Do you want to flip the tables now? Yeah. We're supposed to talk about 72 hours. So let's go a little bit happier. Um, So you wrote the cover story this week. Yeah. Writing. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to tell us a little bit about what we should expect on Thursday? Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this week's issue of 72 Hours. Um, it's, a, it's a Pride-centric issue. For those who don't know, Frederick Pride uh, is having its eighth annual festival this uh, weekend on, on Saturday. And so we've given a whole issue to Pride. Um, there's going to be a local columnist who is a transgender who talks about challenges as a transgender a uh, woman in, in Frederick and challenges she came uh, into contact with in terms of trying to get health care, which is a huge issue for the trans community. Uh, there's another column about fashion. So it's not all heavy stuff, but there's there's I think there's going to be something for everybody. Uh, the story I'm working on is uh, specifically in regards to gender fluid makeup. Uh, and so it's this kind of idea that makeup isn't just for the people that we've seen it marketed toward historically uh, in, in mainstream media, which has been women. Um, and we, we now have these kind of YouTube celebrities who have made hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars and landed magazine deals because they're boys who do makeup and they've made, they've kind of made this popular and quote unquote normal or the, the status quo in some ways. And so we're seeing this rise in what, what is being called gender fluid makeup but at the end of the day it's just makeup it's just for whoever wants to wear makeup and so i uh, interviewed a, a former frederick uh resident who uh came out in about 20 years ago uh and experienced a lot of hate and vitriol uh through that process and ended up moving several times and, and now is in la and opened up his created his own uh, gender fluid makeup line and uh donates proceeds of whatever he sells to his own charity called I Wore Lipstick, which is uh, based on the concept that all marginalized people in society, and this is his his words, all marginalized people in society can kind of share the experience and that they are the ones who wear makeup. They're lipstick wearers. Um, and so I thought that was a really interesting kind of 501c3 to, to fund. Uh, but it's just to give resources to people who are in marginalized societies. Um, and we talked a lot about his experiences coming out and um, living in Frederick and how uh, how it was 20 years ago and how L.A. differs from, from Frederick. Um, and I also talked with a local makeup artist who experienced a lot of the same things when he came out, shockingly. He's a, he's a black gay man, so even a more, more marginalized part of society. Uh, his name is Tony Jackson. Um, and so... We talked about the ideas of gender fluid makeup just kind of if it's a trend, if it's just a passing fad, or if this is something we're going to see. And, and they, they both say, they both kind of relate it to the general overall consensus of being gay, being part of the LGBT community, becoming more accepted in regular life. It's, it's becoming more and more okay to be gay. People aren't as ignorant to, to certain issues facing the LGBTQ community. And they think um, gender fluid makeup is kind of a small step of, or a small example of showing how, how that acceptance is occurring. And, you know, I, I think everyone, 
uh, I talked to for this seems to think that uh, gender fluid makeup is, is here to stay. And, and if you want to wear makeup, you, you wear makeup. So with that and creating gender fluid makeup lines, do they talk about, you know, how makeup might change depending on if you're, um, if you're a man putting makeup on versus a woman? Because I know a lot of makeup has been tested for women it's themselves. Yeah, and so this this uh, Justin Mayfield is the uh, the person from LA who created the makeup line, and he got a lot into the science of it all. Um, just a little bit over my head, but he, he specifically created the line so that it, it can be worn by, by or he has products for, for both people. And so, um, yeah, while something will, uh, some makeups will be more geared towards a woman's kind of uh, skin uh, makeup, her skin construction, I guess, genetics, um, he has stuff that, that is for, for men that won't cause won't cause breakouts and things like that, which, which some makeup can do. Um, and then he has facial masks and things like that that are geared towards, you know, regardless of the skin that you have, it's something that's beneficial for your skin. So, yeah, they're, they're marketing towards specifically some products towards men, but also specifically just towards everyone. Well, that's really cool. And then just since you talked about marginalized communities, did he get into a little bit about how his foundations work? Because I think that's one of the other things that people talk a lot with foundations is making sure you have skin colors that are across the entire spectrum. Yeah, actually, Tone is one of the ones who, who one of the people who talked about that. And it's something we're still kind of coming up short on, even though that we're seeing uh, more and more men wear makeup. We're still not seeing darker shades of, you know, if you have a darker skin complexion, Tone is a, a little bit of, of a lighter black man, but has has a lot of darker black skin or darker skin friends that um, they can't, you know, they can't go to Ulta and find a shade that matches them. They have to specifically um, seek that out and, 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 you know, go to a bunch of different places. And it's not something that's widely available. Uh, I, I think they both think that that's something that's coming down, down the pike, though. All right. And you mentioned the fashion column. Um, anything else in, that's coming up in this issue that we should be looking forward to? We have a super interesting food story um, this week. And, and one of the things I, I wanted every kind of I didn't want us to miss any typical topics that we that we would. And so Mallory and Kate did a good job putting this all together. And they found a story on Serena Roy. For those who don't know Serena Roy, she's the owner of Dublin Roasters Coffee. Um, which is widely seen as an LGBTQ friendly place. It's, it's one of the places where people feel or people in the LGBTQ community feel the most safe that I, that I've heard. Um, and Serena is, um, an LGBTQ, uh, restaurant owner. Um, and she was the first out gay woman on the Frederick police department. Um, and she does a lot of interesting stuff with her coffee. Um, she, she, makes international trips to get to get the coffee beans and, and so uh it's the story is going to be a mesh of, of her experiences as the first out woman on the police department and how that led to her um opening a coffee shop which is a super interesting uh journey that, that somebody could make and so I, I hope everybody reads that on on thursday all right perfect well as always people can read seven two hours in frederickmeanspost.com on thursdays or pick it up on the stands all the articles today can be found at fredericknewspost.com. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Heather Mangilio. Me, Alan Etzler. And edited by Graham Cullen. We'll see you next week.